Hi, my name is Joe Jackson. I'm a journalist, author, interviewer and broadcaster. And given that we in Ireland are currently, meaning June 2021, celebrating in a TV documentary the unparalleled social significance of Gay Byrne as a broadcaster, I'd like to add to the celebrations by basing this podcast on a chat we had in early 1997 when Gay interviewed me over the phone about my latest book, Troubadours and Troublemakers. At the time, I worked in RT Radio, mostly with Gay's friend and my mentor in broadcasting, Mike Murphy, on The Art Show. I'd also met Gay on many social occasions, such as opening nights at the Abbey Theatre, where we'd have brief chats. But this was my first lengthy conversation with the man whom I rated and still rate as Ireland's best broadcast interviewer, largely because he truly engaged with people and really listened when they spoke. Not for him the tedious tendency of focusing mostly on a list of questions or the camera, though he had, as Mike Murphy once pointed out to me, that great skill of being able to operate in two capacities at the same time, as a professional interviewer and as the person who might be watching the interview at home. By this stage in 1997, I myself had been an interviewer for more than a decade, but frankly, I was nervous of the notion that Gay Byrne was going to be interviewing me live on the air at peak time after the Angelus for all my sins. But I needn't have worried. Even over a phone, Gay had the ability to make a person feel relaxed. But the punchline in terms of the following podcast is that this 20-minute live slot on the Gay Byrne Show led to me finally finding my father's family. But that second interview with Gay, a few weeks after this one, you can hear in the second podcast in this two-podcast series. You can, if you wish, subscribe to my podcast in its audio version on any podcast server or the visual version on YouTube. And then you'll be informed when I upload part two of my life-changing chat with the irreplaceable Gay Byrne. In the last few years, you've probably heard and read many different stories about famous people being abused as children by their parents and others, and how the parents were to blame for whatever problems they have in their own lives. Now, uh, journalist Joe Jackson describes his father in his book called Troubadours and Troublemakers as somebody who, and I quote, foolishly tried to substitute both drink and drugs for the son he forced to leave home and later the wife and daughter who followed because of his clearly uncontrollable, self-eroding tendency towards physical and psychological violence, unquote. Now, strangely enough, when Maeve Rowan reviewed his book in the Irish Times and dared to say that Joe's father abused his family, Joe Jackson says that she went too far. Uh, and Joe said in a letter to the Irish Times, I'm not sure whether it was published or not yet, that he doesn't want his, his father's memory soiled in this or in any other way. Good morning to you, Joe. Okay. You use very strong words about him yourself, though, uh, but you don't want to jump on this abuse bandwagon. Is that what you're saying? Uh, yeah, but firstly, I'd also like to thank you. Uh, last year when I did the uh, art show on Frank Sinatra, you made some very kind comments about my father, which were much, much appreciated by the family. Thank you. And, uh, it, uh, yeah, it is that, is the kind of... Um, the word abuse has so many connotations to it that I'm very aware of and I was very careful not to use it when I wrote the introduction to the book and it's certainly not the way in which myself or the remaining members of our family perceive my father so I just thought it was the wrong word used in the review mm. but but y y you're you're implying more that that uh, to blame your parents is to be irresponsible and 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 insensitive and so on 
Uh, it can be. I mean, I've, uh, I've done a lot of interviews with people over the past 10 years, some of which are in the book, with people like uh, perhaps Eartha Earth, Kitt. Eartha Kitt, yes. Yeah, yeah, that was one incident. Well, I think you had her on the late show mm. at the same time. Yes. And at, at like 57 years old, she was still saying, and before I say anything about this, I don't want to hurt or offend or, or in any way belittle people who were abused and feel they are in pain and they are in grief and their lives were soiled. But I just think sometimes we can, or people can, uh, put an inordinate amount of blame on the parents. And in Eartha Kid's case, for her to say to me at 57 that she was still ending relationships with men uh, before they could give her away, as her mother did when she was seven years old, just to me seemed inappropriate. Mm. You know, to let your life be twisted so far out of shape. Mm. And uh, I, I also, it comes from direct experience, because my father, as I write in the intro to the book, tended to blame too many people for his own downfall. Like, he did blame me because I left home, even though I came of, of, of the age where people do leave home. He blamed the Catholic Church. He blamed, he had read Joyce very deeply, and he blamed nearly everything about Ireland, including, I would say, you. And, and I wasn't allowed to listen to RT Radio. We, we had to listen to the BBC, which is very much a Dunleary thing. But he kept blaming too many people. And though some of it was rooted in what I see justification, such as I mentioned in the letter to the Times, him being sent to Glen Cree when he was 11 years old for stealing a couple of rashers. Yeah, hold on, I want to come All back right. to that, which is fascinating. But, but okay. Also, you weren't allowed to listen to Irish radio. Well, no, he just had this. See, my father was was an orphan, and he yeah. wasn't quite sure. I mean, I don't know very much about the people on my mother on 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 his side. Uh, there was a time where we I remember sitting in the car, and he got close to finding out who they were. And it was up in a church in Ballybrack. He asked the priest. The priest apparently had access to the information, but when the priest asked him what he did for a living, he said he was a crane driver. And the priest said, I'm afraid I can't help you. Well, that's the way my father reported it to me, and he came down the driveway crying, which was incidentally the first time I ever saw my father crying. And he looked a bit like Sinatra and Brando mixed up. So to see this man crying when I was a kid was, was, was pretty, was mm. deeply moving. Mm. So he never found out. And all I know is that there, there's a woman, I think her name was Alice Breen, and I have a photograph in our photo album of another uh, woman who was apparently a civil defense instructress in the 1970s called Colette Dunn. And that's as much as we know about that side of his family. Mm. But, so, but, but uh, he didn't allow you to listen to Radio Aaron. No? Yeah, because we, the perception was that... Uh, I, I, part of the thing, as I remember, is that maybe we, we, he came from a mixed... It was part British, part Irish background. Yes. And yeah. also, I do say, I've interviewed people like Ronnie Drew, who grew up in uh, Beaufort in Glasgow in the 40s. And I've told incidentally since the book came out, so many people have come back to me, uh, including your research and said there was this element uh, in Dunleary where so many people believed uh, it, we were British. <laughs> or Ronnie Drew actually said that, uh, that when he was growing up, people in Glasgow would say the worst thing you could say about someone, he's, he's a bit Irish. <laughs> so, so my father yeah. took that to total extremes. Yeah. We lived in Glasgow, but he kind of socialised up around Sandy mm. Cove, around the 40 foot. Uh, and it was really like anything Irish is, is inferior, such as Irish radio, yeah. Irish television. Mm. And I've talked even, Jerry Ryan, I did the TV show with him, and he said he grew up with a similar thing, but with him it would be rooted in pop music. Yeah. So you, you know about all oh, those quite, trends. Of course, of course, yes. Now, go back to Glen Cree. He was sent to Glen Cree for what? Well, yeah, apparently when uh, he was 11 years old, he and two other boys broke into, I say in the book, I got it wrong, people correct you after these things go mm. to print, it was a shop called Pain Take, and they cooked, uh, they fried up some rashes at the back of the shop, and um, they were caught by the police, and my mother tells me that because he had no parents, he was fostered out because he had no parents to plead his case. Mm. He was the only one sent away. So he got three years for stealing a couple of rashers. Three years in a reformatory? Yeah. How old was he? Eleven. Fourteen. I remember the pay and take chain very well indeed. Okay. They were very nice shops indeed. But how, stu any rashers, no? how, how stupid to steal rashers and then eat them at the back of the shop. Well, that to me only shows naivety, <laughs> course, you know, childhood course, naivety, yeah. you know. Yeah. So he went to Glencree for three years? Yeah. 
yeah. for, for rashers. Yeah, and I mean, uh, which one layer to the, the, the kind of intro I write in the book is that he, uh, as much as I feel that brutalised him to a degree, and I say in the letter it kind of, uh, it ruined his human potential sure. to a great degree, because he learned the language of violence. Yeah. He also discovered literature when he was there, yeah. which is why I'm talking to you today and why I have yeah. this book out. Well, well, Glen Cree was a rough house, Joe. So I believe, I would oh. like to know, that's that's why I'm, I'm actually talking uh, to you, so I would yeah. love to know how rough it was. All I know from childhood is that he continually told my mother and that, but, but I now wonder, and again, to go back to the original question you asked me, the reason I, I um, would be oversensitive to the word abuse is because the automatic link most people make these days is sexual abuse. Yeah. And I am now beginning to wonder, did that take place in Glen Cree? Did it happen to my father? He, I asked my mother that, and she said, well, in those days, well, even up until recently, people didn't talk about these things yeah. openly. So yeah. I'm trying to find out, you know, if in the 40s or whatever, what Glen Cree actually was like. Yeah. But it did, it did blight his life, and then it blighted our life. And do you believe the story about the block outside Glen Cree is true? Uh, I do. I mean, uh, again... Explain it, first of all. Yeah, so sorry. Yeah, it's a chap. Now, it's a guy I met called Pat Dixon, who, who's a neighbouring glass tool, and he said that he and I think his uncle, or, or I think it was his uncle, were dismantling what was left of Glen Cree, and the uncle pointed out to him a slab of concrete which had two metal rings on it. It sounds like a scene from Mutiny on the Bounty, mm. where children would be tied and lashed. You know, and that's com- that's something that, ca- that someone told me after, again, the book was published. Mm. So the whole thing has opened up, and it's really, again, it, it partly goes back to you, and I'd probably have to blame and thank you in equal measure, because I had written a totally different intro to the book, and then I saw you interview Nula on The Late Show, mm. and I immediately scrapped the introduction I'd written and just went for this, which I'm still not sure if I didn't reveal too much about my family. Mm. But it's now opened this whole chain of events, mm. which may lead to me knowing more about both my, my father's background. But, but, but were you close to him, Joe, at I was, I was immensely close to him. Yes. I'm going to see the other side of it, and that's why the idea that he kind of, uh, in the newspaper, in the Irish Times Review, he was described as a uh, a working class atheist who um, who felt clearly uncomfortable in the Ireland of his youth, uh, drank too much, abused his family, and died at 49. And just the idea of his life and, and the complexities of the man to be reduced to that single line is, to me, totally offensive. He was a very poetic man. He had all those tendencies, and that's why he was an orphan. I think he took as his role model Frank Sinatra. And incidentally, last night I was reading a book about Sinatra, and I saw. I'd never even read. Sinatra wrote a poem to his daughter. So we always think of Sinatra as a brawler, mm. a thug, mm. you know, apart from the sensitiv- sensitivity of his singing. Quite. But with my father, it was the same thing. He could be the most aggressive, violent, fearful, psychologically damaging man. But he also could, he wrote magnificent poetry, and I have that poetry. And it was he who urged me into uh, writing. He wrote me wonderful letters. He read literature until it came out his ears. You know, all the great authors, not just Irish. Uh, and that was the uh, quirk in his nature. You know, mm. everything Irish was inferior except Irish writing. Quite. Yes. So and did, did he see himself as Joyce? Yeah, he probably had, yeah, he yeah. very much, the yeah. anti-Irish politics, there was no talk of yeah. Irish politics when we were growing up, no talk of religion, except it was, you know, God didn't exist, and that was that. Mm. So a lot of it came out of his, his absorption of Joyce's beliefs. Mm. But and, he was and, a very complex man, and, and he was certainly not, and probably some of the neighbours in Glasstool do just think for because, and again, I didn't know this about Nulo Phelan until uh, this week. After uh, hearing your interview, I hadn't got the guts to read the book, as I think she can't at the moment, because I just, it's too close to the bone. But it was only when I watched the black box the other night, and uh, I, I heard how Nula found her father. It's precisely the same circumstances as I found my own. Mm. So neighbours probably think my father, and, and some people almost would feel, because he gave myself and my sister and my mother hell, their definition, that maybe he deserved to fall down the stairs and, and die at 49. But but just those views of him, I just don't humour for more than two seconds. OK, I, I'll just come back to his death now in a minute, but when did he start drinking? Was he always a boozer? No, he wasn't. I mean, that again is the irony of it all. You know, I remember him uh, drinking once in, in my life, certainly when I was 14, and 
again, it was it was the second moment, such as the one I, I described earlier about seeing him cry. Uh, he, it was Christmas time, and uh, people overdrink at Christmas time. It's the first time in my life I ever saw him drink. He would have been in his mid thirties, and ironically, he 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 couldn't climb up the stairs. And I held him in my arms at that age. Again, a strange feeling for for a boy mm. uh, with a man who was a crane driver and very you know very tough looking guy, and he was tough. And he just kept uh, crying. And I just found that immensely disturbing. So that was the only time in my life I ever saw him drunk at all. Uh, and he started drinking four years before he died as an alcoholic and a speed freak. Four years before yeah. he died? He yeah. must have given it a fair lash. Well, yeah, I, I, that, that's again what I say, and I'm glad you read out the quote to kick off the, yeah. uh, the interview. Uh, I really think that when I left, he, he didn't have any model. I mean, he came from a foster home. He was fostered because they wanted to send him out to work. He went to Glen Cree, and then they sent him out to work at 14. He had no model of a family. And he would continue to refer to, uh, you know, he'd write me letters, and he'd say, again, it was Sinatra, even though Frank left Nancy, you know, uh, his children said he still stayed at home. So when there were breakups among my parents, he'd, this was all he had to refer to. So when I left home, he really felt this ruptured something he had sought all his life to build, which was the kind of family he believed in. And uh, I'm not saying I, I, he immediately started drinking because I left, but he did start drinking at the same time. And I didn't know this because he wouldn't talk to me for four years before he died. So I knew nothing. My parents, my mother didn't tell me. Why wouldn't he talk to you? Well, it was because I, you know, it was basically I went to office as a student. I, I lived in the Bronx for for about four months, which was a hell of a growing up experience. You're there three days and there's a murder in the room beside you. You kind of snap into shape very quickly. Mm. And when I came back, and it was very silly, very simple, and it was like a movie, I think I saw called I Never Sang for My Father, where there's a moment where your father or your mother have been kind of oppressing you or terrorizing you or, or whatever, and you finally turned around. And I very gently said when he asked me to do something, no. Uh, I said, don't talk to me as if I was a dog. I've been through too much in America to come back here and take this shit, if you can excuse the word. Mm. And he said, well, if that's, going to, if that's your attitude, you better get out of the house. And it was a moment of, of decision. It was either, oh, I better yield to this or I'll go. And I left. So the key was taken and I was told, uh, the, uh, my, my mother and sister were told not to talk to me. So for four years that continued that they did talk to me. So that's what happened. And then we got back together a week before he died. Now tell me about his death. Well, uh... Well, because my mother, uh, the, the drinking had accelerated, and I also have a diary. Uh, he, I, there's another another layer to it. Is in 1972 he had ECT, which I think is horrendous, and I think anybody whose parents or, or daughters or children or whatever should be considering that should think a thousand times before before allowing it to happen. And that certainly cracked his psyche to a degree that I think was never repaired. And I think that that accelerated the use of drink and drugs. But um, it apparently it did get worse. And I have his diary for like the weeks before he died. He was writing down, because as I say, he wrote, he was writing down his uh, lonely attempts to break his addiction to amphetamines. And he would write in the diary, I'm down to six, I'm down to eight. I had to drink a bottle of vodka because I'm off the pills. And uh, I, I didn't know this was going on at all. And even when I met him for the week before he died, he called me because my sister had left. And he, ironically enough, uh, asked me, could I help bring my sister back home? Mm. But he didn't say, you know, he didn't mm. say, how are you or, or how mm. have things been for you? But then we had conversations. And even when I went for a drink with him, because I'm not, I was never a drinker. I certainly, I mean, I will drink, but I, I've rarely been drunk. And when I went for a drink with him, I was too dumb not to recognize that he was ordering doubles for every single drink I yeah, had. Yeah. And I also, when he would talk on the phone, and, and this again, these are the telltale signs I think we all should be educated to. I didn't understand, again, too stupid to hear the slur in his words yeah. was evidence of, of amphetamine abuse or tranquilizers. I knew none of this. So uh, he was going through hell in the last months of his life, calling the, the, the you know, calling, crying out for help, writing poetry to nobody. And uh, then 
he said that uh, uh, the, the, again another irony is the, more, the day he died uh, one of the neighbours heard him singing out in the backyard and said you're very happy and he says oh well Joseph and I are reunited and then that night he fell down the stairs and died which was and, and when did you find him? Uh, that, the, the next afternoon so it's exactly the same I mean it's really when I heard uh, Nuala read that section it was totally the same circumstances as Nuala Phelan I mean I walked up the door I was actually taking him to a movie I wanted to bring him to see uh, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest yeah. because I wanted hopefully I wanted him to finally talk about ECT which yes. he's never done yes. and uh, my sister had called to say I'm a little scared there's a milk bottle outside the door and the curtains are, are closed will you go down and see and, but I just wasn't thinking of death. I thought maybe he had a cold or, or, or something. And uh, I went up the doorway in Eden Villas and uh, saw coal outside the window, uh, which was another bad sign, and uh, pushed open the letterbox and saw his body. Mm. So it was... Uh, and I, you know, it, it was actually... It was a great moment in one way because in terms of how you can deal with psychological and physical pain, I grabbed a lump of coal and punched my fist through the window. Uh, think, I don't know what I was thinking, just thinking I need to get to him to save to him, and uh, I, I nearly killed myself. But if you can deal with that, you can deal with anything. Well, why did you nearly kill yourself? Well, because I ripped the tendon. Oh, I beg your pardon, yeah. yes. You're, well, you're, it was totally by accident. Was, yes, you were, break, you were breaking the glass because you had no key. Well, I wasn't, yeah. Yeah, he, well, that was again, yeah. talk about another irony. Yeah. He told me I'd only get a key when we finally made up, because I hadn't got a key, I had to punch in the window. But it was a pretty horrific, and it was a ridiculous death. I mean, the idea, and you saying that he only started drinking at 45 and then to die as a result mm. of it. And he was also very dismissive of, I mean, a lighter side to it were some of the neighbours when I was a kid, I always remember, my dad had the first, <coughs> excuse me, domestic stereo in Ireland. And on Saturday afternoon around six o'clock, there was like a ritual in Eden Villas in which uh, local people, I won't name them because maybe they're not mm. still drinking, would come up and they'd knock on the door and they'd just, they'd queue up to hear the train moving from two channels of a stereo speaker <laughs> yes. to the other side. Yes. And they'd be swaying. And he'd be actually saying, look at this son. But then he'd also say, don't ever get like that. As in, you know, Saturday afternoon, six o'clock, and people are pissed drunk. Yes. And uh, so he, he even had that kind of adamant position against us. So you you want uh, to know more about his days in Glen Cree, Joe? I'd love to. I would love to. And also, I mean, if there's anybody on the other side, I've been told that maybe Colman Pierce, or someone like that on the other side of the clan, anybody from his side that he wasn't able to get to before he died. And that's, you know, that's why I'm, there's a lot of journalists hate the fact that I call my, or the Irish Times call my interview, the Joe Jackson interview. But part of that, as I say at the front of the book, is, is it like a, a metaphorical tombstone for my dad. It's like it's his name slapped up in the paper. So I'm, I mean I tried to give as much kind of uh, credence to his name because he died feeling it was inferior and that he was an orphan, that he didn't mean anything. So I would love to know, uh, hear anything from anyone on, on, on his side that the brain, the Don, and certainly anything about Glenn Cray. I'd sit down and talk with anyone. And maybe not just the 40s, you know, maybe in the 50s the, the, it was the same. Quite, yes. Uh, the Glenn Cray in the 40s and 50s. It, I can tell you you know, I have memories. It was always held as a threat, either that or Artane. Right. It was held as a threat. If you don't behave, you'll be you'll be sent to Lennon Cree. You'll but what did they tell you was going to be done when you were sent there? Well, it was a reformatory. It was run by the Christian Brothers, wasn't right. it? And, yeah. and and there were three or four of them around the country, or indeed half a dozen of them around the country. And and the worst one was all was the one out in Connemara. For the life of me, I can't remember right. the name of it now, but uh, it'll come. Letter Frack. Letter okay. Frack is the very one. Letter Frack. That was the worst one of all because, all right. because there was no escaping from there. Yeah, this was like Devil's Island. It was out there in the west of Ireland somewhere in the middle of the bog as far as we were concerned and there was no getting away from it. But they were all pretty tough places. But then it was a different time, a different era and a, a sort of a different planet. And, well, that's, and that's, that's why I'm actually happy that I did yes. actually see you interview Nula and rewrite the intro because 
by writing about the Ireland that used to be, when my book is actually about the new Ireland and mm. the Ireland I've experienced interviewing Quite. people over 10 years, I'm saying, shouldn't we be happy to have left this behind? Yes. And that's where I felt, well, then I should tell the whole truth about my father. Yes. And I also think, I mean, my father did die, the circumstances I described earlier. I always remember the doctor saying, we won't, we won't let this get into the papers, you know, and it was supposed to be something I should have been ashamed of. Mm. And uh, I really don't think, I mean, as there are so many things that Irish people used to get, would just brush under the mat we're now speaking about. And certainly I don't think that anyone in Ireland should be in any way ashamed. Because again, I remember, I don't know what it was, I read something about <clears throat> John Lennon wrote a letter to somebody who criticised him. And it was, a, it was a turnaround. He said to the critic, you must have been in terrible pain when you wrote that letter. Mm. And I remember thinking, why that? But it was the idea that people do not act in this way or, or become alcoholics or turn to excessive use of drugs unless there's some kind of psychic pain. And that actually, when you, when you understand that at 16 or something, I've, I've thought along those lines ever since. Mm. So I'm not going to, uh, uh, I don't think anyone should be ashamed if their father, their daughter, their son, their partner is addicted to pills or, or is an alcoholic, or indeed if they die of the same thing. I wish more people would talk about these things. Well, they are lovely interviews in the book, Joe, with Gabriel Byrne and Roddy Doyle and Mary Coughlin and so on, about about the Ireland of today and what they think about this, that and the other, and, uh, and uh, you, you've done a terrific job on it. Uh, troubadours and... Uh, Troublemakers. troublemakers. <laughs> Troubadours and troublemakers and uh, anything about Glen, Glen Cree in the 40s and into the 50s and, and stop, stop, you, you want people to stop blaming their parents for everything. I do, yeah. I think the sign of, a sign of emotional maturity is, I don't know who said it, Leonard Cohen or something said, it may come in your mid-40s for a man, where you finally have to say goodbye to your parents and hello to yourself. But that is goodbye to blaming them for everything you've yeah. turned out to be. Yeah. I really think that is a definitive moment in, in, in the emotional growth yeah. of, of anybody. It's, 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 it's too easy to just say, I am who I am because of who they were. Yeah. You know, you are who you are because of yourself. At a certain point, that's who defines what you There's are. There's a lot of people who do it, though. A oh, lot of people go right through life. I know. Joe, thank you for talking to me. Okay. Um, lovely to talk to you, and I wish you success with the book now. Thank you very much, Kate. All right, good morning to you. Bye. That was Joe Jackson, and you know him from his writings, his interviews with various people down through the years, and the book is called Troubadours and Troublemakers. Uh, we have to take a break here. Joe Jackson has been on to say there's been a great response to his call on Friday. He was talking about his relationship with his father and the terrible childhood his father had. And Joe wanted to talk to people who knew his father when he was in Glen Cree Reform Centre. Joe Perry, as he was known then, was there from 39 until 1943. Or so indeed Joe thought, because somebody else told him that all the boys in Glen Cree were moved to Artane when war broke out. Joe has also been contacted since the programme by relations on his father's side, with whom he hadn't spoken to previously, so a lot has happened in the past few days for Joe. And he wants to thank the people who knew his father, Joe Perry, as he was known then. Hi, Joe Jackson here again. I thank you for listening to this edition of the Joe Jackson Interviews podcast. And if you want to read any of my articles or listen to any of my interviews, check out my website, joejacksoninterviewer.com.